strongest man in prison always walks alone. And he said, you know, Wes, remember, you don't have to win all your fights, but you do have to fight all your fights. And he's telling me that, you know, that that's really a rule in life, that you don't have to win all your fights, but you have to fight all your fights. This is Running For Real, the podcast for runners who know that for every runner's high, there are just as many lows. All those just missed PRs, easy runs that feel hard, injury blues, and more. Each week, we'll talk to running, health, and wellness experts about their highs, lows, and best advice to build our confidence. Running for Real is about being honest, being brave, and most of all, not feeling alone. And now here's our host, who loves to wear t-shirts, Tina Muir. Hello, my friends. Welcome to episode 118 of the Running for Real podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining I'm hoping you are listening to this because you're already subscribed and that means you will get each of these episodes in this mental training week right to your phone, to your podcast player, however you listen automatically. If you're not subscribed, go do it now. So welcome to this bonus week of episodes with motivational speakers and sports psychologists. I know you love these episodes, but I try and keep the topics varied so I don't have sports psychologists on as much as I would like. But I had the idea that maybe I could bring on seven different psychologists and motivational speakers and have them give their strategies and the tools they actually recommend to their athletes to overcome these mental battles and and how we can practice this mental training. You know, we often talk about how we want to work on our mental training, but then we don't do it. So I thought, you know, motivation from elite athletes is all well and good, but it can be kind of fleeting. So if we had lots of different voices and lots of different strategies and surely some of them would speak to each of us and we could take them and use them. So that's what I did. But honestly, friends, once I started, I realized some of the people I'd asked were more suited to giving a motivational talk to kind of changing our perspective on things, which is, you know, often what we need before we're about to make a change like this. So I kind of changed it a little bit. This week, you have a few guests like my guest today who are going to inspire you, make you see that you can do anything with your life. And then there's going to be other guests that are going to give you the tools you need to put these kind of tips you've learned into practice. Now, Evie's told us before that it needs to be what works for you as an individual, but I realized that not everyone can afford to go see a sports psychologist. So I thought, you know, what can I do to give you something for free, give you value for free? And I thought giving different opinions from sports psychologists with different practices, you know, you can find the ones that speak to you and and try out different tactics. So that's enough about what this week is. Let's meet our first guest. Well, today my guest is Damon West, and I'm going to let him tell his story as it's really powerful and just inspiring to see how you can turn your life around and not just change it, but take it from absolute rock bottom to a life that is fulfilling and makes you happy. This is the ultimate story of redemption, and I really hope you like it. Before we get to it, though, I want to thank a sponsor for today, Coro's. Many of you pay attention to my wrists, apparently, as you noticed that my previous GPS watch was missing and something else was in its place. You know that I don't like recommending things that I don't feel confident about myself, so I've actually kept it quiet until now. Other than those of you who are sneaky and noticed it yourself, I wanted to be sure that I actually really liked this new watch before I recommended it, and I do. My new Coros Apex watch um, has meant that I've left my old watch for good and friends, yes, I can officially say I'm converted to Coros. I wore the watch in the Boston Marathon and it was great. It has some really clever features that I've never seen on a watch before. You know, those things that you might not think 
oh, my watch needed this. But once you have it, you think that is genius. Like, for example, when you pause it to go to the bathroom or maybe a recovery between workouts, it tells you how long you've been paused. Now, I don't know about you, but that feature helps me out a lot, especially as I do a lot of my workouts without looking at my watch and without kind of setting up for intervals, which you can do with this watch, but I choose not to. So, you know, that tells me how long I've been paused. So then I know how long of a recovery I had. Or maybe, you know, the screens you see, for those of you who love data, it can be difficult to choose which ones to see. Well, this one has five screens you can switch between and uh, it gives you so many options. You're just going to love it. I just played with it for hours at first. But of course, I did change my primary one to just time and distance. But I do love being able to see the other stats afterwards. I'll tell you a bit more about that another time. But I just want to tell you one more feature that I love for today, which is that it shows you the activity you've done for that day behind the watch face. So behind the kind of clock hands, um, it tells you what you've done for the day, which is kind of nice because it makes you feel good and feel that you've been, you know, you've accomplished something today. What I love best though, it just looks sleek. It's a casual watch that I could wear on a daily basis and I just love it. So if you go to tinamuir.com forward slash Coros, that's C-O-R-O-S, that's tinamuir.com forward slash Coros, you can get yourself a bonus watch wristband to go with your Coros uh, watch. I again have the Apex. So go visit that now and check it out. Damon, thank you so much for coming on the Running For Real podcast. I am really excited for my audience to learn from you, be inspired by you, and just kind of get a sense into into what someone can do if they go from a, a huge high to a huge low and then kind of back up to what appears to be a huge high, although probably not without its uh, struggles as well. So welcome uh, to the Running For Real podcast. Thank you for being here. Tina, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. This is really, I mean, a great honor. You have such an amazing following out there. And to pick me up, I'm just humbled by it. I really mm-hmm. am. Well, no, I was happy to. And I was really, you know, I just loved learning about your story. And I think people can learn a lot from it. So let's dive right in, you know, starting with, um, you know, you're a football star. Full ride, was that right? In college? Oh, yeah, full, yep. yeah uh, full ride scholarship to the University of North Texas. Play mm-hmm. quarterback there. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And quarterback isn't no isn't a position that's just kind of added on at the last minute there either. Um, and then <laughs> I think it's it's probably the toughest position in all of sports. I mean, mm-hmm. any position in every sport. I mean, they've got tough tough jobs to do. But if any team sport, quarterback is probably the toughest mm-hmm. mentally, especially mentally. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's interesting. I did I wouldn't have thought that, but you can maybe explain that to us a little bit more later. But I want to make sure we can get to the the parts sure. that I think are, are really going to help people here. And so, you know, you had a very bright, promising future, um, kind of took a, took a chance on and trying something, you know, went down a, a very dark path. And uh, I would love for you to kind of just share a, a brief version of kind of what happened for our listeners who don't know. I know you've told this story a thousand times, so I don't want to, you know, beat it to death. But if you could just tell people that don't know kind of what happened from there. Yeah. So, um, you know, you got to kind of start back a little bit back uh, growing up, you know, I, mm-hmm. um, I came from a great home. My, my mother and father, my dad was a sports writer. All right. So he was a sports writer for almost 50 years down here where I'm from in Port Arthur, Texas. He was the first sports writer, Tina, to put a black athlete on the front page of the sports page back in 1971 here in this part of Texas. And he's got a box of hate mail at home to prove mm. what that decision was like, you know? So, uh, my mother's a nurse, my older brother, Brandon, younger brother, and Grace, I have a nice little happy home, but we had problems too. And, you know, I tell people all the time, 
every family's got problems. We had a crisis in our home in 85. I was nine years old and it came out until my parents, my babysitter had been molesting me. And that was really the, uh, the first real time that our core, our foundation kind of got shaken a little bit. I mean, they sent me to counseling, talked to the family priest and we prayed about it. My mom prayed all the time. Um, so, uh, but something inside that little nine-year-old boy went to a kind of a dark place. And so by the time I was 10, I started putting in chemicals to change the way I felt. And looking back at now in recovery for the rest of our lives, I realized this is what's called the activating event. And so started drinking uh, at 10, started smoking cigarettes at 12. I'm smoking weed. Mm-hmm. Um, smoking marijuana. Yeah. I'm into criminal addictive behavior at 12 years old. And, but I don't know anything about addiction at this point, but because I could throw a football really well, I got a lot of breaks cut to me in life. And you're in the South, you know, football is big in the South in high schools. And so, uh, I was a star athlete in my town. I was a three year starting quarterback. I got a scholarship to play at the university of North Texas, which is what we talked about a while ago. But when I got to college, it was six hours away from where I grew up. And, uh, you know, there was kind of no safety net around me anymore. My family was, wasn't there to watch over me. And I got to kind of branch out and do my own thing. And when I got to college, I really cared about two things, Tina. And that was uh, being the starting quarterback in my college football team and partying. And I did both really well. I got into a fraternity. I was starting quarterback in my team by the time I was 20 years old. But I came to what I call fork in the road, a fork in the road day. And these fork in the road days, Tina, and you've had them. Everybody out there listens had them. A fork in the road day is that when you get handed some adversity, something in life has knocked you down. You get back up, you dust yourself off, and you got a choice to make. Am I going to make the right choice to go the right way or make the wrong choice to go the wrong direction? And then on September 20th, 1996, I came September 21st, 96, I had this huge fork in the road day where we're playing against Texas A&M. We're playing, you know, Texas A&M, huge college football game. And uh, by the third play of the game, I go down. I get hurt, and I never play college football again. And so, once my college football career was over, wait, was it actually over? Like looking back now, was it done, or was it like you would have needed a long period of rehab, but you could have come back uh, for like a final season, or were you like, was it done? No, it, great question. So I separated my shoulder against Texas A and M, and when I separated my shoulder, they had to go in and cut my collarbone out, mm. and so that season was over. And when I came back in the off season to rehab, my shoulder. I had an accident in the home and, uh, in my girlfriend's house getting ready. I was in the shower and the towel rack broke and the towel rack fell down and cut my Achilles tendon in half. And as a runner, yeah, as a runner, you'll, you'll understand the Achilles tendon injury. That's a big one. And that was mm-hmm. what ended my football career. I mean, so okay. September 21st was the last game I ever played. And then when I cut my Achilles in half the next summer while I'm working out and, and getting ready to play college football the next season, that was it for me. And when I, that fork in the road in life, we have an athletics taken from not just athletics, but you're an athlete too, Tina. The ability to walk was gone, you know? And so I mean, and I was on crutches for eight months and, you know, I turned to hardcore drugs at that point. I got into cocaine, ecstasy pills, you name it. If it was a chemical that could, that could change the way I felt, I was putting it in and, and doing it. And, and I partied a lot once football was over. I was in a, like I said, I was in a fraternity and somehow by the grace of God, I graduated college in, in 1999. I moved to Washington, D.C., I get a job working in the United States Congress. I work for a congressman from Houston, and this is in 2001. And after that job in Congress, I went to work for a guy running for president of the United States, this Democrat from St. Louis, a guy named uh, Dick Gephardt. Dick Gephardt was running for president in 2004. When he dropped out of the race, I quit doing fundraising, and I moved back to Dallas, Texas to train to be a stockbroker for one of the biggest Wall Street banks in the world, the bank called uh, UBS, United Bank of Switzerland. And it was at that job training to be a stockbroker where – I was introduced to meth for the first time by another broker. I was sleeping at my desk one day and the guy came up and he saw me sleeping and he's like, Hey man, look, he said, uh, you know, Damon, get up. You can't sleep on this job. 
you'll get fired. So he said, come on down to the parking garage. You got something's going to pick you up. And so we went out of the parking garage and he handed me this glass pipe and it's got these little crystal rocks in it. And I had never done anything like this before. Tina, I was into cocaine and other drugs, but, and I asked him, I said, man, what is that? He said, it's crystal meth. He said, you'll love this stuff. And, and Tina, never truer words have been spoken. And I fell in love with that drug. And I mean, instantly I was hooked. And it was, and I tell audiences and kids all the time that meth is the most evil, most addictive, most destructive drug ever created by man. You know, I couldn't give everything away fast enough for that drug. I gave up my job. I gave up my savings. I gave up my car, my home, my family. I went from working on Wall Street to living on the streets of Dallas. I mean, I'm sleeping on park benches sometimes. I'm living in other dope houses. And I'm running around with a group of other meth addicts. And all we do is commit crimes to get our drugs. We start breaking into storage units. We start breaking into cars. And eventually we start breaking into homes and they called these burglaries that we were committing. They called them the uptown burglaries because of the neighborhood of Dallas that I was burglarizing. And in uptown Dallas uh, was where I was living when I was training to be a stockbroker for UBS. And so I, what I was doing basically is preying on my old neighbors in the uptown neighborhood of Dallas and beyond neighborhood neighborhoods beyond that. And uh, after a little over three years, the burglaries on July 30th, 2008, uh, I was in this little rundown apartment where I was living and I'm smoking meth on the couch next to my meth dealer. This guy named Tex. And I'm telling Tex, man, Tex, I think the end is near. I think the cops are going to come get me pretty soon. You see about 10 days before this, Tina, this guy had been doing all these burglaries with this guy named Dustin had been picked up by the Dallas police department. And so I know it's just a matter of time before they get to me. And just as I pass that pipe back to Tex, I hear a window shatter off to my right. And I'm and tumbling across my living room floor, I see this little canister going end over end, and it starts to register what's going on. It's like a slow motion reel from a movie as I get up off the couch and I get over this thing and bam, this flashbang grenade goes off right in my face. And a bright white light, loud noise, blew me back on the couch. And when I came to, when I can see and hear again, this cop in full SWAT riot gear, he's got his boot on my chest and the barrel of a machine gun is digging in my eye socket. And I can feel the barrel up against my eyeball, Tina, it's cold. And the cop is screaming at me, don't move, don't move. Man, I looked up at this guy and I blinked. I was like, man, don't worry. You know, don't worry. Another cop started coming into my apartment, flooding into the windows and the doors. And one of them screams out, we got it. We got the Uptown Burglar. And, and they did. They had me. They had the guy that was the, the head guy from the Uptown Burglars, you know. And, um, you know, they took me in a Dallas County jail where I, I would spend 10 months waiting to go to trial. And, and you know. For that 10 months, Tina, I had this one thought kind of going through my head. is like, I can't wait to get out of here and get high again. And that mm -hmm. was because I'm an addict, Tina. And, and that's the thing. I mean, you look at me and you speak to me. Uh, you can't tell that I'm a meth addict. I'm, a, I'm an addict in a long-term recovery. But I have a program of recovery today. But, you know, back then, you know, about a dozen other meth addicts and myself, young and old, male and female, and black and white, and everything in between, because drugs don't discriminate, addiction doesn't discriminate. So, but we indiscriminately and without reservation broke into the homes of dozens of people in the uptown neighborhood of Dallas to feed our insatiable meth habits. And we created real victims along the way, Tina. And this is what I tell people all the time, you know, burglaries, that's a whole different level of crime. And I stole something from my victims, way more valuable than the property I stole from them. And there was over a million dollars worth of property stolen in the Uptown burglaries. But the thing I took from them that I don't even know if they even get back is their sense of security. Yeah. I stole so many people's sense of security. And I mean, it, and those people, my victims view Damon West a lot differently than you or your viewers, your listeners. Subscribers will, will view Damon West because they view me as the guy that came into my home without my permission, the guy that 
is the reason why we have three deadbolts on our door now instead of one or two. The guy that is the reason why we sleep with our lights on at night. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, I heard a lot of people, I was a bad guy and I don't try to pull any punches about that because I own what I do. And that's part of being in recovery. Part of being in recovery is owning you know, your, your behavior. So, but I wasn't there yet when I was in County jail. So, so I'm sitting in Dallas County jail the first couple of days and I'm scared to death, you know, and I've already been in a fight in the first 24 hours over, over a breakfast tray. And, um, you know, they have these phones in the day room. So I, I call home and I get my dad on the phone, my parents, you know, I don't even know if they know what's going on with me, but I'm, I'm almost reverting like to a childlike state at this point because I'm scared to death. I mean, D- D- Dallas County jail, it's a huge jail. There's 8,500 people in Dallas County jail. It's huge. And so I call home and my dad immediately, I can tell in his voice that, I mean, he, he sounds like a wounded animal. He's screaming and crying on the phone. Damon, you know, how did we go so wrong with you? How did we mess up so bad? And, and what could we have done different? And so he's crying and I'm crying and, and we can't really have a conversation. So my mother grabs the phone because he, he just can't talk. And my mom is like, look, Damon, I've never seen your father like this before in my life. She said, but we need to have a serious conversation. She said, you need to understand, Damon, there's nothing you can do to make us not love you. She said, that was the deal we made with God when he loaned you to us. She said, do you understand, Damon, that we love you unconditionally? And through the tears, I told my mom, I was like, yeah, I, I get it. You love me unconditionally. I understand. She said, good, because we just gave you back to God, Damon. She said, there's nothing we can do for you anymore. She said, you're property in the state of Texas now. And I'll never forget, she said, you are now a captive audience to God, and you better start listening. Then she asked me a question. She said, Damon, do you remember that prayer plaque that I had on your wall growing up as a kid? And, uh, you know, I'd been on drugs for three or four years you know, at this point. My brain wasn't even firing right. So I told my mom, no, I, I don't know what prayer plaque you're talking about. She said, baby, it was footprints in the sand. She said, it was above your bed growing up as a kid all your life. I said, mom, I don't understand. I don't, I don't remember footprints in the sand. So she patiently and lovingly retold me the story about a guy walking the beach with God. And I tell people all the time, you know, whatever God you believe in, insert that for this story because, you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to convert anybody here. So, but she's telling me this story. She said, you know, guys walking the beach with God, they're watching a video play out of his life in the sky. And she said, every time something good happened in that man's life, there's two sets of footprints walking side by side. She said, but every time something bad happened, there's pain, there's hurt, there's suffering, there's loss. She said, there's only one set of footprints, you know? And, and so what everything, and so the guy realized what was going on and finally he couldn't take it anymore. So she said, he called God out and said, Hey God, what's up, man. Every time something good happens in my life, you're walking me side by side. But when things are bad, you, you abandoned me. And, uh, she said, that's when God laughed and said, Damon, you fool. You know, every time you saw one set of footprints, I didn't abandon you. I carried you. you know? And so she said, baby, look, look down at that jail right now. There's only one set of footprints and they're not yours. Get on God's back. I don't want to lose my son. So, you know, Tina, my mom is, a she's such a special woman. And so, I mean, I, and I'm in a, in a place at this point in my life where I'm desperate. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I start talking to a guy that I hadn't talked to since I got hurt in college, you know, since 96. And so, you know, but these prayers, it, this, this wasn't some, you know, I tell people all the time, this isn't a jailhouse conversion story. That's not what this is. You know, this didn't even happen overnight. You know, I mean, I, I prayed to God for 10 months going to my trial. And this is my prayer every night. I'd get on my knees in that bunk in Dallas County Jail, and, and I'd start off by saying, man, God, get me out of this jam. If you do, and that, you know, like I'm bargaining with God, like he waits for me to get up to run the universe. And uh, so, you know, dear God, man, get me out of this jam. And if you do, man, I'll be a normal guy again. I'll get a job. 
and I'll just smoke meth on the weekends, you know? And I'm, so, I mean, that, but that's an addict. I mean, in my mind, I'm going to get out, get on probation. I'll get a job, but I'm going to still get high. Mm-hmm. And so I realized when I got to trial 10 months later that God never heard that prayer. He had just ignored it, kind of like spam in your inbox, you know? Because when I, when I went to trial, I got my day in court. You know, I didn't actually just get one day in court. I got six. And six days oh. is a long, long criminal trial for crimes that weren't aggravated, where no one was hurt. No one was ever, no one was ever home during the commission of my burglaries, you know? There are a bunch of property crimes around meth, around drugs. Uh, yeah, I mean, you hear about this stuff all the time. But this trial went on for six days. The evidence was overwhelming against me. I was guilty as could be. And the jury, the jury, man, they listened to all that testimony for six days. And at the end of it all, they deliberated on my sentence for a whole 10 minutes. And I don't know how much law and order you watch, but I mean, 10 minutes. If a jury's gone for 10 minutes thinking about your punishment, they just smoked you. Earlier in the episode, I told you some of my favorite features about Koros. I just wanted to give you a quick reminder to go visit the website at tinamuir.com forward slash Koros. That's tinamuir.com forward slash C-O-R-O-S. I know it's scary looking at a new brand. In fact, this is the first time I've left my previous brand from my very first GPS watch. And yes, I did test other brands in the past, but I didn't like them, to be totally honest. But Coros is the real deal. I love it and you will too. Go visit tinamuir.com forward slash Coros. This trial went on for six days. The evidence was overwhelming against me. I was guilty as could be. And the jury... The jury, man, they listened to all that testimony for six days. And at the end of it all, they deliberated on my sentence for a whole 10 minutes. And I don't know how much law and order you watch, but I mean, 10 minutes, if a jury's gone for 10 minutes thinking about your punishment, they just smoked you. Mm-hmm. When I came back in the courtroom and the judge gaveled in, he said, Damon Joseph West, he said, you are hereby sentenced to 65 years in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. It took my breath away, T. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, my God. That's a life sentence. Anything, anything 60 and above in Texas is considered life because you only get one life. And the 60 years is the majority of it. So yeah. I heard my mother gasp on the front row when she heard the sentence. And it was, I mean, just the sound only a mother can make when she hears her son get a life sentence. So they whisked me away out of the courtroom, threw me in this little room on the side of the, uh, side of the, the courtroom. It's got a bulletproof glass right there. They tell me to wait. And about five minutes later, my parents come in on the other side of that that room. And so they're having a conversation. They're going to give them five minutes with me, uh, before I go to prison. And my mom, my mom does all the talking. My dad is in stunned disbelief. You know, he just saw his son get a life sentence. And so my mom does all the talking. She says, baby, that's in life demand to be paid. And she said, you just got hit with one hell of a bill from the state of Texas. She said, but you did the things they told you you did. Not they, they said you did in that trial. She said, so you have to go pay that debt to society to pay that back. She said, but you owe your father and I a debt. She said, you know, we gave you all the opportunity, love and support to be anything you want to be in this life. She said, and this is how you, re, re, you re, repay us. She said, we raised you in a giant melting pot of a city, Port Arthur, Texas. She reminded me that I was always one of the only white kids growing up in a sports team, summer parties and birthday parties and everything. I mean, I grew up in a melting pot. She said, so here's the debt you're going to pay to us. She said, when you go to prison, you will not get to one of these white hate groups, one of these Aryan Brotherhood type prison gangs. Cause you're scared because you're the minority in there and you, you've got a tough road ahead. She, 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 she said, that's not going to work. She said, a matter of fact, you're, when you go to prison, you're not going to get a bunch of tattoos all over. You're not going to get, get a bunch of graffiti all over your skin. And, and, uh, she said, you will get on God's back 
She said, no gangs and no tattoos. Do you understand this debt you're going to pay? And I was like, yeah, mom, I, I got it. She said, good, baby. She said, you either come back as the man we raised or do not come back at all. And so that was a lot of tough love for my mom. Mm-hmm. And so I agreed to it, but I had no idea what I really agreed to because when I got back to the pod in county jail, I went around asking all the guys in there, you know, how am I going to survive prison? And, and every man there, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, is saying the same thing. Man, you just got hit with a life sentence, man. You're going to the worst part of the Texas prison system or a part of the prison system where they segregate you by your sentence. You know, they said you're going to live on a building that's got nothing but life sentences for the first five years you're there. You won't even get to leave the building except to go to the chow hall and the chapel and the law library. So they're all telling me the same thing, man. You're young enough. Get into a gang, man. Just let the gang take care of you. You know, that'll be your new family. And uh, I kept telling them I couldn't do that. But there was only one guy in that, that whole pod that really voiced over all the crowd. This old guy, and I call him Mr. Jackson for the sake of the story, and, it, and it's in my book, too. Mr. Jackson was an older black guy. He had been to prison four or five times. He's in his 60s, a Muslim guy. And uh, he'd come up and check on me every day. He's a real positive guy. And so he asked me one day, he said, hey, you know, Wes, I've been watching how you're dealing with these knuckleheads and these dummies talking about you need to get to a gang. He said, you know, don't listen to them. Don't don't buy into that. He said, you don't have to get into a gang to survive. He said, but you need to understand some things about prison, and I'm going to explain it to you. He said, the first thing you need to understand is that prison is all about race. He said, it's the most disgusting environment you'll ever go into in your life. And he said, so because it's about race, the white gangs got had the first dibs on you. And you you're going to have to fight all the white gangs, the Aryan Brotherhood, the Aryan Circle, the, the White Knights, the Woods. All of them. He said, and if you survive all that, you don't give in to their ideology of hate out of fear, then you'll fight the black gangs because they'll send the black gangs after you. The Crips, the Bloods, Gangster Disciples, Mandingo Warriors. He said, you're fighting them all. He said, but if you survive all that, you'll earn the right to walk alone. He said, the strongest man in prison always walks alone. And he said, you know, Wes, remember, you don't have to win all your fights, but you do have to fight all your fights. And he's telling me that, you know, that that's really a rule in life that you don't have to win all your fights, but you have to fight all your fights. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, Mr. Jackson's telling me that and he says, Hey, look, man, let me just give you an analogy, make this easy for you. He said, imagine prison as like a pot of boiling water. He said, anything we put in this pot of boiling water is going to be changed by the heat, and the pressure inside that pot. He said, I want to put three things in that pot of boiling water and watch how they change. He said, I want to put a carrot, an egg and a coffee bean. He said, first things first, he said, if I put a carrot into a pot of boiling water, he said, what happens when you boil a carrot? And I said, well, a carrot turns soft. He said, that's right. He said, the carrot went into prison hard, but the water beat him down. He got beat, he got robbed, he got raped. He said, he may have gotten killed. He said, you don't want to be the carrot in prison. He said, if I put an egg in that pot of boiling water we call prison, he said, what happens when you boil an egg? And uh, I said, well, the egg gets hard, Mr. Jackson. He said, that's right. He said, the egg had that hard outer shell, which protected it from you know, the, the physical abuse, unlike the carrot, the carrot didn't have an out, hard outer shell. He said, but the egg soft liquid inside turned hard because of the heat and the pressure inside that pot. He said the egg's heart turned hard. He said, if you become the egg, you are incapable of giving or receiving love and you have become institutionalized. He said, the egg does not come home with someone their parents recognize. He said, but if I put a coffee bean into that pot of boiling water, we call prison. He said, what happens when you put a coffee bean into boiling water? And I didn't know the answer, Tina. And he said, Wes, if you put a coffee bean in a pot of boiling water, you're going to change the name of the water to coffee. He mm-hmm. said the coffee bean, the smallest of these three things, had the power to change the entire atmosphere inside that pot. He said, if you're going to survive prison, you're going to have to do with that coffee bean. He said, everybody in life puts out energy. 
He said, negative or positive. He said, whatever kind of energy you put out, you get back. He said, that's the law of attraction. You know, if you, if you walk around negative all the time with a frown on your face and a scowl, he said, you'll attract the same kind of person. But in there, that could be very dangerous. He said, but if you walk around, if you walk in there with a smile on your face, you let those dudes know they're, they're not getting you no matter what they come at you with. He said, you'll change that prison from the inside out. He said, and the best part about it is, is the other coffee beans in prison will find you because of your energy. He said, the only chance for you to survive and come back as someone your parents recognize is to be like that coffee bean. And so that's the last thing he said to me before I went to prison. Is, you know, Wes, go out there and go be that coffee bean. And, you know, Tina, that coffee bean story is the one thing that resonates with people so much everywhere yeah. I go. No matter if it's a football team or athletic department, runners, uh, children, kids, uh, a corporation even. I mean, because that coffee bean analogy is so apt because – you know, every one of us has the power to be like that coffee bean, to be that, like the name of my book, the change agent. You have to be an agent of change. You have to be the change you want to see, but you can change whatever environment you're in. That's a choice that you have. And so, um, I took that secret with me, the coffee bean secret. And that was something I kind of put in my pocket. It let me know that everything was going to be okay, that I had some control over what was going to go on. I had a say in this whole thing. It wasn't just a transaction where I didn't have any say in it. So, I went to prison and the first couple of months were brutal. I mean, they were, they were hard. Like, was it literally like you said, where it was, you know, you did have just all these gangs coming at you and you just had to survive the fights. Like, was that literally how it was? Literally how it was. Let me tell you the first, first episode I had in prison. So Jackson told me too, he said, when you get, you get into prison, he said, when they give you your, 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 your housing assignment, he said, when you get there, he said, do not run to your bunk. He said, I want you to go into that pod put your back against the wall and let it happen. And I was like, what happened? He said, your heart check, man. He said, and a heart check is when they come to see if you have enough heart to fight back. And he said, it'll happen fast. He said, the first guy that comes up to you is not coming to hurt you, man. He's coming to gather information. He said, he's going to ask you what gang you're riding with. He said, it's going to be a white guy too. He said, so you tell this guy that you're, you know, you're not going to ride with them. You ride with God and just tell him to get out of your face, man. He said, but the second guy that comes up to you, He's coming to hurt you, man. He's coming to, he said, when he comes up to you, put your fist in his mouth as hard as you can, man. He said, try to get the jump on that guy because he's coming to really hurt you. And so when I got to prison, Tina, Mr. Jackson was totally right. So I get to this pod. I'll never forget my first housing assignments. G pod, seven building, G pod, two section, three row, 45 cell, bottom bunk. There's so much terror around those first couple months of prison. I can never forget that bunk. So I walk into the pod and it's, it's a huge pod, Tina. And in my book, I really get into a lot of description about it. I mean, it's three tiers in there. It's massive. There's guys sitting around the day room. And and it's like one of those scenes in the movie when a guy walks into a place he's really not expected. Every, eyes, every set of eyes turn on him and the music, the record kind of scratches and it gets quiet. So everybody's watching me and I'm, you know, I'm looking back at them. I'm trying to survey the place and see what's going on, going on around me. There's all kinds of stuff going on there. So I'm put my stuff down, put my back against the wall and wait inside the first 10 minutes. This guy comes up to a little bit short white guy. He's got barely any teeth in his mouth. He's got tattoos all over him and he's drunk. I can smell it. I mean, he's those guys make a lot of wine in prison. They make hooch. Hmm. And so he's drunk on the wine, the hooch. And so he comes up and I, he stumbles up and he says, Hey, white boy, what family are you riding with? And so he's just a little, one of these little Aaron brotherhood type guys. And so, I say, hey, man, look, and get out of my face, little dude. I'm riding with God. Just leave me alone, man. Let me make it. He laughed at me, Tina. He said, man, God ain't even here, man. Well, he, he said, we kicked him out a long time ago. He said, but we're here, white boy. We're coming to get you. 
And so he staggers off and I'm like, man, you know, I'm thinking to myself, that did not go well. And, and as I'm sitting there, just mulling over my thoughts within another 10 minutes, here he comes, you know, the first test, this huge white guy. And he's got ball, this big skinhead guy, ball headed guy. He's got a swastika tattooed on top of his head. Oh my he's got tat- tattoos all over his body, muscles and veins ripping out of his, his skin and, and man, when he came up and he got within range, I hit this guy as hard as I could, you know. I mean, I hit, I gave him everything I could right in his mouth, just like Jackson said. And within 20 seconds, the fight was over. He had me on the ground, beat me down. I mean, just and it was over quick. I mean, this guy's been fighting all his life, and here I am stepping in there. And I, I tell people all the time because uh, this will draw some laughter sometimes from some groups. And I'm like, did y'all really expect me to tell y'all that I beat this guy up, that I won that mm-hmm. fight? I mean. Some little white guy goes into prison and starts kicking everybody's butt. And I, I told him that's that's Hollywood, man. That's that's in the movies. That's that's Rocky. That's a fantasy. Yeah. The reality is, Tina and I tell people this all the time out of humility. Is I lost most of those fights in those first two months in prison. Those first two months, I decided how my rest of the, the rest of my sentence was going to be. I lost most of those fights. I mean, I lost seventy five percent of my fights. The way I gauge it. And guards are just standing like no one really does anything. It just kind of play, let the play, it pays out. Sometimes there's guards around. Most of the time, guys wait till there's no guards around. I mean, that's that's the whole thing. The guards don't care if you fight for the most part, as long as you don't do it in their face. So, I mean, guards on that part of prison. I mean, this is a life sentence building. You know, everybody on my building has a life sentence. I mean, 432 people on seven building, and I mean, most most everybody's got life. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's a, it's the edge of the earth. So it's 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 literally the last stop before death. But uh, very dangerous place. And so, you know, the fights happen. You know, the guy beat me up the first time, but I fought back. And that's the thing. You know, no matter how many fights I lost, it doesn't matter. Nobody in there kept score. And that's what Jackson said. You don't, you don't have to win all your fights, but you have to fight all your fights. And so I would get up and fight my fights, Tina. And so it took me a couple of weeks to get through the white games. And after I was done with the white games, and I mean, I'm talking about all these guys, Aryan Circle, Aryan Brotherhood, all those guys. And after the white gangs, it became the black gangs. And then, man, it, I was, it took weeks to get through them. And finally, I had to go out to the rec yard and earn my respect a different way. And, and because here's the deal. I used to sit there for those first six weeks. And every time they would roll the cell doors for, uh, for chow, for rec yard, for day room time, whatever. Every time they would roll those cell doors, man, I would be so nervous. I mean, I was like, oh, man, I did not want to go out there because I was so scared that I was going to hear someone say those dreaded words. Hey, West, I want to look at you in the shower. And if someone tells you that I want to look at you in the shower in prison, they're not saying something that's a homosexual thing or gay. They're saying we're going to fight, man, because people box in the shower, man. The, the showers are a place where there's, there's no guards around. There's no there's no cameras, and you can clean blood out of the shower really easily. I know. So I get so tired of hearing those guys say that. It's so scary. But about six weeks into it, you know, I get up one morning. And I look in this little dingy old mirror in my cell. And a mirror in prison isn't uh, isn't a piece of glass. That's a, that's a weapon. A mirror in prison is a piece of steel that's got a polish to it. You can barely see your reflection. In it. And I look in that mirror and I say this sentence that I remember from a, one of these motivational speakers came in when I played football in the 90s at North Texas. And he said, if it is to be, it is up to me. And that is literally 10 words, 20 letters, the most powerful sentence in the English language. Because if it is to be, it is up to me is a permission statement. Mm-hmm. And so I looked in that mirror and said that, and that was the day I quit putting limits on myself because I realized up until that point, that, uh, I realized at that point 
that the only person that can put limits on me in life is me. And I had been holding myself back this whole time because I put limits on myself. Nobody can tell me what I can and can't do. Hell, Tina, no one can tell you what you can or can't do. Only you can decide if you'll allow someone to hold you back. And that's you. That's a choice. Thank you to Mighty for sponsoring this episode of the Running For Real podcast. I'm always on the lookout for runner gadgets that you might find helpful because I don't know about you, but for me, for some reason, I find it really frustrating when I'm looking for recommendations and all I can come across are those big publication recommendations. And you know, they're just promoting their friends' products, not because they've tried or tested them, but because they're basically passing favors back and forth. Today, I wanted to introduce you to Mighty and why. Well, because one of the superstars, Sarah Williarty, shout out to you, told me she was loving her Mighty and thought the community might like it. I looked them up and she was right. Now iPod shuffles are no longer being made. I did not know that. There was a gap for runners who didn't want to carry their phones, but did want to listen to music. And I know many of you are in that boat. Mighty can be your answer. It is linked to Spotify and it's this tiny little square you can easily take with you on runs to listen to your favorite playlist that you create. And the great thing about Spotify is that you don't have to purchase the songs, but you can listen as much as you like. You can make your own playlist or listen to someone else's. You can find out more by visiting bemighty.com forward slash a vibe. That's B-E-M-I-G-H-T-Y.com forward slash vibe. And if you use code Tina Muir, that's T-I-N-A-M-U-I-R, you will get 15% off your order. Go check it out. The only person that can put limits on me in life is me. And I've been holding myself back this whole time because I put limits on myself. Nobody can tell me what I can and can't do. Hell, Tina, no one can tell you what you can or can't do. Only you can decide if you'll allow someone to hold you back. And that's you. That's a choice. So so can I just pause you? Was that was that the moment right there that you decided like you wanted to kind of, you know, um, be give everything you could to be good behavior and try and get out and try and like do what you're doing now? Was that the moment or was did it did it really take that long to realize that? Or had you kind of got to that point earlier, but this was just a a, a defining moment? No, this was just one of those defining moments to, because I, before I got to the point you're talking about, I had to get through the terror of the mm. physical violence that happens uh, when you first get to prison. And so, like I said, I went to the rec yard, started playing basketball. The, you know, the rec yard's a really segregated place. There's no white guys allowed in the basketball court, but I worked my way into the basketball games and it was abusive. It was physical and violent. There's no guards on the rec yard. There's no, there's no referees. There's no such thing as a foul in prison basketball. You can punch and kick and scratch and bite, and do everything you want. And so I'm out there playing, the only white guy out there playing. And it, and it takes almost a full week, takes six days for these guys to finally relent. Just, I mean, and they finally told me, I said, man, you've, you've pulled something off out here. We had never seen a white guy pull off before. You took everything we had, all the abuse we could put at you. And you gave it back when you could. And you never got negative and called us any racially charged names. And they said, look, man, you don't have to worry about white. You don't have to worry about the black guys the rest of the time you're in prison. So that was six or seven weeks into it. There was only one more fight that I would get into. And that was the last one. That was a real brutal one. Uh, and that was the last fight I ever had to get into. And after that, after the fighting was done, Tina, I really got to work on myself. And that's when I quit looking at prison as a punishment and changed my mindset to looking at prison as an opportunity. Here's an opportunity to work on myself 24 hours a day, 
seven days a week. You'll never get this kind of opportunity in life again, Damon, is what I always tell myself. And so I watched and because I observed and I realized that, you know, rarely is it ever a good idea in life to make your own mistake when you've got so many examples of others of what not to do. And my college, my bachelor's degree was in sociology. So Tina, living in prison in a maximum security prison on a life sentence building was like living in a giant sociological experiment. It was like living in a giant Petri dish. And I mean, I just watched and I learned. And so I'm looking at all these guys around me that work out. And these guys, some of these guys, Tina, complain the NFL. They're huge. All they do is work out all day, right? Physically. But I realized that they're not really working themselves out the way they should be because they're only working on one aspect mm-hmm. of their life. Physical. And so physical. So I decided to get up every day and work out in three areas, spiritually, mentally, and physically. And here's what I learned, that you are what you eat. And that that isn't just about food and what you put in as physical fuel, but you are what you eat mentally. You know, what kind of books do you read? What kind of videos do you watch? What kind of websites do you go to? What kind of TV do you watch? What do you feed your brain? You know, because whatever you put in, you're going to, you're going to be like on the outside and, and spiritually, it's the same way. What do you? you tap into spiritually do you tap into it daily do you tap into it weekly monthly yearly i mean if you don't you should consider it. it's a big universe out there you should you should find something spiritually to tap into i don't know what that something is supposed to be for everybody but i know that in my life as an addict i have to have a higher power man i have to tap into something because i can't do this alone mm-hmm. and so every day i'd get up you know and i meditate and i pray you know spiritually that's how i handle myself and, and i put the right stuff in physically. I started working out. I started getting into running and that's when I got into running in prison, you know, and it started, I mean, I wasn't in any kind of shape to run at that point, but I started running a little bit and every day I started running a little bit more that, you know, something really interesting that was in prison about running. So I'm in prison and, and I'm a pretty extroverted guy in normal life, but I'm in prison and man, this is a crazy place. You know, and I don't really enjoy having a lot of conversation with a lot of people. You know, these guys all told me, Hey, you know, keep your circle tight when you're in prison. You don't want to spread yourself out too much. You get drawn into everybody's drama. So I would try to avoid as much conversation as I could with just random people. And I found that running was the best way to do that because most people aren't going to run in prison. And if you're running, you can't be talking. So I would <laughs> run and run and run. Like and how long would you say good. you were spending, like, you know, if you could kind of think back, can you think about how... Was it you were doing about an hour a day or like, you know, did how much were you building up here? Oh, easily. I can, I can honestly tell you. Yeah. So I started out doing it about 10 minutes a day, you know, and, and what I would do is I would have my rosary and, you know, cause I'm Catholic, you know, I, like, but like I said, I'm not trying to convert anybody or anything like that. That's not, it's not a story about that, but I'd take my rosary Tina, and I figured out I could say a rosary in 12 minutes. And then if I was really hurrying at 10, so that was the way I kept my time, kept my pace. And I would go out there and run. You know, I didn't run for distance and I still don't run for distance. I I run for time. I want my heart rate to be up for a certain amount of time. I don't care really so much about my distance. And I didn't really care about my distance then. So I would go out there and just time how long I was running because I didn't have a watch. You know, one of the things you can have a watch in prison, but I didn't have one. Um, But the rosary was my watch. So I knew that if I was out there for two rosaries, I was there for 24 minutes, you know, or but I like to get about when I got to the point where I could do five or six, you know, rosaries, sometimes seven on the rec yard. It just depends on how long they give you for rec. And I don't even know what my pace was. I don't I don't have a clue. But I knew that I was alone. And I knew that when I was alone like that and I was running and I could literally hear my my God, whatever, you know, what my concept of God was. I can talk and lit. But the main thing was I could listen. That's when you meditate. That's the difference between prayer, prayer and meditation. Prayer is when you talk. Meditation is when you listen, mm. you know. So 
I would literally just listen while I would run and clear my head, clear my thoughts. And it was quiet. It was one of the only quiet times. It was like put on headphones almost. And so physically I got in shape. Uh, spiritually I got in shape and mentally I got in shape. I read a lot of books in prison, Tina. I learned two things about books in prison. Check this out. One, I never saw a guy reading a book, get into a fight almost 10 years in the joint. And I never saw one guy reading a book, get into a fight. And two, I never saw a fight over a book. Never, not one time. So, I mean, books were great. You know, they were, they were, they were fascinating. I could escape prison mentally. I could escape, you know, cause the social contract says in society says, look, if I break the rules, I have to go to prison. And, and that's cool. I belong to prison. The state of Texas took custody of my body, but the state of Texas never, ever took custody of my mind or my soul. And that was the difference, Tina. That was the difference. That was when, you know, when I started getting in shape like this, that was when I got into recovery. And getting into recovery was a game changer for me. And because I learned a lot of lessons in life. And, you know, and that coffee bean thing was also one of the big, that was a big thing for me because I controlled, I could control some part of what was going on around me. You know, being an addict, you know, addicts have this fallacy about control. We think we control a lot more than what we do. And I learned in recovery recovery that there's only four things that you control in life. And I learned it in one of the meetings one day, you know, every time we go into a meeting, we say the serenity prayer. Are you familiar with the serenity prayer, Tina? Mm, I am not. So serenity prayers is God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And, and when you're in recovery and you talk about God, you know, you're not talking about one religion's God. I mean, Mm -hmm. the thing about recovery is that everybody gets to pick their higher power whatever you want it to be. Every individual, you could have 50 people in the room and 50, all 50 people have a different concept of what God is. And that's cool. That's great. Because all we're trying to do is keep people sober and whatever it works for you, that's great. But you find a higher power and you say, Hey, look, I can't do this on my own. I have to have a higher power to keep me sober. And so, you know, I learned in that, in that meeting that there's certain things that I control in life. There's four things. And that's what I think, what I say, what I feel and what I do. And outside of those four things, I really don't have a say in what goes on. The other things are on God, God's line. And that's the thing, you know, you know, God's line versus your line. God's line is infinitely long. It goes from one horizon universe to the next. And my line is about an inch long of that. You know, I get an inch out of that infinitely long line. And inside that little inch, those four things. And if I just concentrate on those four things, then I can really work on myself and I can really deal with life on life's terms. Because here's the deal. If it's not something that's between my ears, then I don't have a say in it. I don't yeah. control, but I can control those things in my control my head. I control what comes out of my mouth. I control my thoughts. And I also learned what the secret to life was when I was in there. The secret to life is is not you don't have to go to someone's seminar, buy somebody's book to understand what the secret to life was. The secret to life is literally one sentence. It's serving others and being humble, servant mm-hmm. leadership. And servant leadership is helping other people achieve their goals in life, finding ways to help put back into the stream of life every single day. And when I was in prison, I tried to do that to the best of my ability. You know, I was, I had a bachelor's, a bachelor's degree from university of North Texas. And so I couldn't take any college classes, but I could go to the schoolhouse and, and tutor guys. I could teach guys how to read, how to write, get them ready for the GED test. So they may have a better chance in life when they get out of prison one day. But wait, so you, you're in, you're in the, um, this was after you got taken out of the kind of maximum security life group or like how, for those yeah. kind of people, are they kind of, does everyone kind of, or not everyone, but obviously the people that are wanting to take their GED want to do something like you mentioned, these are people who 
have said, right, I'm going to try my best to get paroled. Like, is it realistic to get paroled for most people if they kind of do, you know, act good essentially? And um, is it those kind of people that you were talking about or was this down the road when you were kind of on your way to getting out yourself? No, this is not, and that's a very good question. So, you know, not everybody's into to positive uh, transformations in prison. I mean, that's not, a lot of people are in prison and they're like, you know what, you know, they're just, they're not looking to change their life or change their ways. But there's a lot of guys that are, and one of the things the state of Texas tries to do is when they get an inmate that comes in, no matter what their sentence is, if they don't have a GED or a high school equivalent of, of a GED or, or high school diploma, they're going to put you into some kind of GED program, you know? And so they try to do that because they want to give you a chance. Now, when I'm on that life sentence building the first five years, there's, there's not a whole lot of that going on. There's very few guys that are going in there getting their GED and stuff like that. But the guys that do, I mean, I work on helping them out when I work on tutoring them and but you can come off the building for a few reasons. That's one of the, that's one of the reasons you can come off, you know, you can go off to get your GED and you can go off to help the guys get their GED. So mm-hmm. I, I try to keep myself, in, in mesh and positive stuff. And, and when I could finally work, when I could finally have a job after five years, and that was the best rehabilitative program I found in prison was being able to have a job because a job gives you a purpose in life. A job gives you gratification every day for getting up and doing a task. You know, you don't get paid any money to go out and work, but I mean, you get to feel like you accomplished something. And that was great. And they let me have a job after five years. And and I was a clerk. I was a clerk in unit supply. I was a clerk in medical. I was a clerk in um, in the chapel. And it was uh, it was a very rewarding thing to be able to get up and have a job and have purpose. And I feel like your life has meaning. You know, like, that's important. People need to feel that way. Sure. And, and, you know, and so, I mean, I tell people all the time that, you know, your past doesn't define you. You know, your past wins don't define you. Your past losses don't define you. Your past is your lesson. And, and the present is a gift. And, and so when I was in prison, I was making the most of my present predicament. I and mean, that was a gift, you know, and the future is your motivation. And, and so that what you were talking about is that idea to get out and do something. I got a letter from a, a former high, former junior high teacher, my favorite teacher I've ever had. This guy was seventh grade history teacher that I had. And we stayed friends over the years. He was a football coach, too. And so he wrote me in 2011. He said, Hey, look, Damon, he said, uh, I've been, you know, thinking about how to write you and how, how to present this to you. He said, but you've had a ma- an amazing life. You've been to the highest of highs, the lowest of lows. You could have done anything you want to do in life. And you ended up in prison. He said, but this is not the end of your story. I know you too well. And he said, look, here's the deal. When you get out of prison one day, I think you should start sharing your story with, with kids and, and sharing it, using it as an example of what not to do and, and a warning to others. He said, because, you know, you were always charismatic. You were always a leader and people will listen to you. If you get out and share your story and be humble about it. And so that was where the seed really got planted at uh, one day when I get out, but Tina, I don't know when I'm getting out. I mean, they could keep me for all 65 years that they want. And I've, I've got to do, I've got to do 15 before I can get out. But the thing about it is, is I get credit for every day that I'm there and I don't get in trouble. I get an extra day's credit. I get an extra day of good. They call it good time. And for every day that I'm there and I'm willing to work, I get a half a day. And so even those first five years that I can't have a job, they give me the half day credit because that's a custody level thing. They have to give that to you. And so when I got to the point of being in prison for six years, I had an extra six years of good time that made 12 years. And then I had an extra three years of work time credit because half a day for every day for six years is three years. 
that made 15. And so when I got to the 15 year mark, I came up for parole for the first time. Which was technically seven years of you, seven years of you being in there, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the six, six to seven right in there, because if okay. you, you get six, six years, even you get another six years, that's 12 and then another yeah. three is 15, but it took them until almost the seven year mark to come in and see me for parole to review my case. But coming up for parole and making parole, anybody that's been to prison will tell you are two different things. Because one, I've got a life sentence. And the odds of me making parole the first time on a life sentence, we'll put it this way. I've never saw I never saw anybody that did I saw one guy that did it actually. One guy mm-hmm. the whole time I was there. So uh, the odds of making it are pretty slim. And so I went into that parole meeting and uh, you know, the lady that was interviewing me, the parole officer was interviewing me, and she was she was open. She was honest. She said, Hey, look, you know, I don't see a lot of, a lot of people come in here in front of me that, you know, have your background and your file and you've done all this stuff that you've been in prison. I did. I did everything I could while I was in there. I got involved in every chapel class I could, you know, mm-hmm. I got into recovery and I, and I, I even told that lady, I don't know when y'all are ever going to parole me, but when y'all do give me a parole option that has some, some substance abuse treatment on it. Give me some help. I want help. I want help along the way. And she said, uh, she said, Mr. West, if you could be remembered for being anything in this life, give it to me in just one word. And I fired back off at her right away. I said, useful. I said, all I want to do is be useful again. And that's what my program recovery teaches me to do is be the, be useful, be a part of the solution instead of a part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And I said, I can be useful in here or I can be useful out in society again. But when y'all said, y'all decide to parole me, just know that I want to be useful. And they gave me my parole, Tina. Right. They granted my parole the first time. I had to go to a substance abuse treatment program, which is another prison, a minimum security prison for six months before I made it out of prison. But on November 16th, 2015, they came to the cell door and they said, all right, Mr. West, we're here to let you go. But if you come back anywhere in this country in handcuffs again, we're going to keep you for the rest of your sentence till 2073. Right. And so I'm on, par- I'm on parole until 2073, which means that I go – and report to parole officer every month, uh, pee in a cup, answer questions, get my paycheck stub. I pay $18 a month in my parole fees uh, in perpetuity. If I want to travel outside the state of Texas, and I do a lot of traveling, I have to get a, a special permission form. I have to get a travel permit. And the travel permit is basically a, wave, a waiver of extradition. I'm waiving my right to extradition if I get in trouble in another state. Mm-hmm. And I have to carry it with me everywhere I go. And so I have limitations on me. I mean, I don't have a ton. And I'm on parole. I can't get in any more trouble. But I mean, literally, most people live their lives on parole anyway because they don't get in trouble. They follow the rules. I mean, so it's, I mean, whether or not you know it, Tina, I mean, you live the life of a parolee, you're not going out and getting in trouble. I mean, so it's pretty much the same thing. It's a, yeah. it's a social contract theory. So I want to ask you some questions here. Um, you know, you, go you for it. I, I, I've loved hearing that in detail. And thank you so much for sharing. And I'm sure that is really going to touch a lot of people with you sharing your story. But there's a few things I, I want to kind of know about. And I'm not sure. I'm sure you've been asked along the way. But we all find it difficult to forgive ourselves for mistakes that we've made in our lives, be it personal or even for our listeners, you know, uh, maybe a, a running mistake. They uh, you know, we, we, the people listening know that we beat ourselves up for making a mistake within a race, which after hearing your story seems so trivial, but you know, it's true. So have you met any of the victims that you mentioned about earlier? You know, you mentioned about how you kind of essentially had taken their trust from their lives. Have you met any of them or, or how have you, have you ever tried to kind of, uh, 
I don't know, um, find a way to give back to them or, and even just from that, have you managed to forgive yourself in another way? If not, I will take this one part at a time. First part is the victims. No, I've never met any of them. I've never talked to any of them. I've never apologized to any of my victims. And I'll tell you why it is a felony in the state of Texas to reach out to any of your victims. I cannot make an apology to any victim. I can't make an apology over social media, over any kind of media, over anything like that at all. I stay far away from that because I cannot. I'm not allowed to. But here's what I do. You know, it's like the parole lady that that interviewed me told me these rules. You can never reach out to your victims. And and that's fine. And and that's that's fair, too, because, you know, they don't need to hear from me. But here's what we do. In, in recovery, we want to make amends for the things we've done wrong. And it's the ninth step, you know, the eighth step of, of the 12-step recovery program. Says you make a list of all the people you had harmed. The ninth step basically says that that you went out and made amends, except where to do so will cause more harm to them or you. So in the event that you have an amends that you have to make for the things you've done wrong, and I have a ton of them because I hurt a lot of people, Tina, I go out and make what's called a living amends. And when I go out and do service work or volunteer work, and I do it all the time, then those are my amends that I make for all the things I've done wrong to all the people that I can never say I'm sorry to. So me going out and doing a bunch of service work is my way of giving back to the universe, putting back into the stream of life. You know, that crazy prayer that I told you about when I was in jail about wanting to get out and get high and just smoke meth on the weekends, I changed that when I got into recovery in prison. And I still say the same prayer that I learned in prison. It's two parts, Tina. And I say the same prayer every day is God put in front of me what you need me to do today for you. All right. And let me recognize it when I see it, God. Don't let me miss that. And that's it, Tina. I don't pray for health or wealth or happiness or even forgiveness anymore. And the forgiveness part was a tough one. I did not learn how to forgive myself until I got into recovery. And here's how I figured it out in recovery with the help of all the other people in recovery is that. I want forgiveness for the things I've done because that's the only way I'm going to stay sober. Otherwise, and that's what keeps addicts and alcoholics going back and getting high and getting drunk again is because there's, there's baggage in their lives. And one of the things we do in our 12 step program is we get all the baggage out of our lives. We make amends to all the people we've done wrong, even if they're not received. I mean, you know, I I've said, I'm sorry to people that I offended before and from a long time ago, all the things I've done wrong in life. I try to, I try to look these people up. Not the victims of my crime, but people I've, I've, I've offended along the way. Mm-hmm. And some people have said, you know what? You're, you're a jackass. You're, still, you're a jackass now. You're a jackass then. I don't care what you have to say. And, I, and all Just I can say you're is say bringing up you. like kind of feelings that they've been, you know, working hard to forget or. Well, maybe. And maybe they have resentments over it. But here's the deal, Tina. It doesn't matter if they accept it or not. I can't control that. The only thing I can control is what I think, say, feel and do. So I'm, I'm going out. And making amends for the things I've done and saying, I'm sorry, genuinely saying, I'm sorry. And they don't have to receive it. That's not part of the, the, there's no transaction there that goes on. I could make a thousand apologies and a thousand people could tell me to go to hell. And I have to be okay with that because all I'm doing in life is keeping my side of the street clean because that's all I can do. And it's not up to me of whether or not someone wants to receive my apology, but it's up to me to to go out and extend the apology, to be humble and say, hey, I'm sorry for the things I've done. So when I started doing this, when I started making these amends, it it occurred to me that I was still having, you know, I still had a resentment against myself. And Mm -hmm. and, in recovery, we talk about resentments all the time. Resentments are the number one offender for an addict. Resentments will send you back out again, Tina. 
And anybody out there that's listening that's an addict or dealing with addiction or substance abuse understands that a resentment, man, it, it plays on you. you. You have a resentment against somebody, you don't eat away at you. You know, it's like I tell people all the time, hate corrodes the container it's contained in. Because most of the time, the person you hate doesn't know or doesn't care. Mm. And it, it eats you up on the inside. And that's what a resentment does. A resentment is like, you know, you drinking poison and hoping the other person gets sick. And so the resentment in my life was me. The biggest resentment, and that was the one thing that was holding me back in recovery and in life when I was in prison, because I still had this negative feeling, this negative disposition towards myself. And through recovery, I realized, hey, look, man, you're going to a God of your understanding. And you're saying, hey, look, here's everything I have in my life. You know, forgive me for it. Let me move on. And you work the program, you work the steps, and you try really hard to get forgiveness from, from other people and, and to get forgiveness from the universe, basically. Mm-hmm. But you're still holding back on something. Who, are, who am I? You know, that's the whole thing about being an addict. We have these egos. We have these egos and this, you know, we have this, we suffer from uniqueness. We think we're pretty unique. And so I must think I'm pretty unique if I can't forgive myself, but I can be forgiven for all those other things. So mm-hmm. I did. I forgave myself eventually because, you know what, Tina, aside from just the part, the physical part of it, I mean, look, I got a life sentence in prison. I went to a maximum security living hell for almost 10 years and I did my time, Tina. And I'm not trying to, to minimize or mitigate the crimes I committed. I heard a lot of people and I deserve to go to prison, but I also did everything I was supposed to do by the social contract. They let me out of prison. I didn't escape, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. I did my time. And so I can feel like, Hey, I've done what society's asked me to do. But moreover, I converted myself into the best version of Damon mm-hmm. that I could be. And I didn't do that on my own. I had a lot of help along the way. My family, you know, I was doing time. The prison I was in is in Beaumont. And my parents lived in Port Arthur, the town right next door to Beaumont. So I got to see my parents over 150 times when I was in prison. They came to visit me almost every weekend. I mean, literally no one gets that that many visits in prison. I never had both feet in a prison, Dina. I had one foot in, one foot out the whole time I was there. And that's largely due to a lot of help from a lot of people. So I didn't do this on my own, but I was tapped into something. And, and anybody, Tina, can tap in to that spiritual wave, that God wave out there, you know? Yep. And I want to ask you one more question here. I'm going to have to wrap up soon, but um, I've been letting you talk a lot because I want, you know, what you're saying is so powerful and so interesting and just, you know, a a life lesson for all of us. But looking back, would you change anything or do you feel like it, you know, what happened led to something greater? It led to you helping kind of more people than you have harmed. I I know that's a, a horrible and a difficult question, but like, do you think you've stopped more people from kind of heading down that same path by kind of taking this life that you have, um, you know, decided to to live since getting out and kind of during your time in there? No, it's an interesting question. I and mean, it's, it's something I get hit with quite a bit. And it's interesting because a kid asked me this the first time that I was ever asked, a little 12 year old asked me, what would you change? You could change anything. And if I could change anything, I probably would have gotten help at a younger age, whenever I was into substance abuse, I mean, you know, you're, you're doing drugs at 12. That's a young age. Yeah. You're doing stuff. But the long answer to this, the real answer is that I think that we play the roles in life that the universe wants us to play mm-hmm. and things happen along the way. And we have choices. We have free will in that too. And so I don't know that I have the power to change the things that have gone on in my life or I even had a say in it, but I did have the power of how I responded to it and how I reacted to it. And and I have found my life to be more useful today, Tina, than it ever would have been had I stayed on the course and been a stockbroker and 
you know, I probably would have been on my second or third marriage at this point. I'd still be an alcoholic and an addict and my life would have been miserable and my life would not have the purpose that it has yeah. now. Yeah. Because today I'm useful and I'm useful because of all the things that have gone on in my life. And now I realize that innocent people got hurt along the way. The, the people I hurt the most about this, by the way, are my family. Mm-hmm. I locked my family up in prison with me. I mean, they were locked up too. my mom, my dad, my brothers. The biggest victims are my family and, and I put them through hell. But but I do think that it was, it all had a bigger purpose. I mean, like my book, I get people responding to, my, to stuff about my book. I was down there and it blows me away. I'm humbled by the way the universe is using me today. And as long as I always remind myself every day, that this is never about me, Tina. This is about what I can do to put back into the universe, what I can do to put back into the stream of life, then I'll be okay. But if it ever becomes about Damon West, I'm in trouble. Yep. Well, thank you. And you are doing a wonderful job at continuing to, to give back. And just to, one final question here, you know, for anyone who is, you know, obviously the the football, the injury with the uh, the shower, was it the shower rack? I think you said. Um, yeah, towel rack. Towel rack, that was it. Um, and obviously the injury during that final game uh, that, you know, that took away a lot of your identity was kind of the, the, the nail in the coffin as to kind of feeling good about who you are and that identity loss was kind of what really set you down that dangerous path. So for anyone who is listening, who is really struggling with kind of feeling a bit of a loss loss of identity, they aren't sure about what their purpose is. They aren't sure, you know, where to go next and just feeling very um, kind of down about life. What would you, what would you say to them, you know, in terms of getting help, in terms of kind of changing that? Here's what I would say to them. Just like that coffee bean thing that Mr. Jackson shared with me is that you have the power to change the entire atmosphere around you. You have the power. You can be that change that you want to see in society, you know, or you can be like the carrot that, that gets soft and like life beat it down. You can be like the egg that gets hard. You can be, you can be miserable. You can be mad. Misery is the only thing in life I've ever found that was free. You can have as much misery as you want in life, or you can be like the coffee bean. You can go out and change the atmosphere around you. And that's what you have to be. That's a choice. You know, I saved the best for last. You know, we're talking about running stuff. I was out of prison for three months, February of 2016. I got out in November, 2015, February, 2015. I'm at work. I get an email about this 5k that's going on this local five big race every year. And so the firm will offer them where I work to look for people to participate. And I'm an athlete. So they're like, Hey, will you run this? I've never run a race before in my life. So I agree to go to this 5K and I walk up to the line. First of all, there's like 950 50 people aligned, you know, to run this race. Mm-hmm. 950 people. And I've been in prison. I don't like being around a lot of people. I don't like getting bumped into. And so I get up there and I get up at the starting line and it just, you know, I say to myself, you know, Damon, this is a lot of people. Don't set your expectations too high. You ran a lot in prison. Sure, you're in great shape. But if it is to be, it's up to me. And that's the advice I give myself at every Every position I get in life, the starting line I get to, whatever it is, metaphorically mm-hmm. or physically, and I busted out of the block in that race, Tina, and I won the entire thing. Oh, of wow. 950 people. Cool. I won the, I won a, I won my first 5K with the 1929. Can you remember the 1929? I was going to say, people are going yeah. to want to know what the time was. 1929. Absolutely. No, it's, it's not a great time, but <laughs> no, I mean, I say that you know, fast. here I, yeah, I mean, here I am, you know, I'm 40 years old at, at the time, you know, I'm fresh out of prison. I'm a, a non-entity to a lot of people, but I mean, I won, you know, so, hey, it was, that was really the only, I ran another 5K later on that I had even a better time, but there were better runners. And, and I think the only reason why I won Tina is because they also had a marathon, a half marathon and part of that race that day. <laughs> so all the really good runners were in the big events. So anyway, but I got a medal. So I was happy about that. Cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. And what a cool thing. And um, a 
few more things. I'm just going to add a few bonus things on. We're going to do these instead of the running three or four. We're going to skip those this week. Mr. Jackson, have you ever had a chance to to go see him, to go thank him for basically keeping you alive with his advice? Um, what have, have you had any contact? No, this is and this is probably the most frequent question I get, especially with the book out. Mm. Um, Mr. Jackson, I never got his real name. All I know, he was a Muslim guy, and a lot of the Muslim guys get into prison and they change their name to a Muslim name. Okay. So I don't know his real name. I don't have any way of getting in touch with him. And you know what's crazy about it is I, I don't know that um, he would be shocked to see me. He's probably the shock, yeah. to, but probably more shocked because he was talking to a guy that was going into the, the belly of the beast with a life sentence. You know, no one expected me to make yeah. parole at this point. I mean, the parole people are even shocked by it. So. That's no, cool. I've never got a chance to meet him, uh-huh. thank him, but I would love the opportunity. Yeah, well, that, I guess that would be very difficult to find him, but let's hope some somehow, some way you cross paths with him at some point. And then uh, finally, you know, you mentioned to me in email that you kind of have lost motivation for, maybe not motivation, but you've struggled to find the time to get some runs in. You did tell me before we started recording that you went on your first run in a few months uh, this morning, which for my listeners to know, I said to Damon when we first started emailing, I was like, I will get you back going again. Like I have a habit of doing that with people and I've already got you going. Um, but what would you like to kind of say to anyone listening just kind of about what running has given you? Uh, maybe, you know, you haven't, you've struggled with it the last few months, but in prison and just out of prison, once you came out and did that 5k, what is it about running that was really special to you? Running, you know, growing up playing sports, running was the worst part of practice for me, but now in life running it's, it's, it's a lifeline to tap into. Here's the deal, man. You get positive endorphins that are released when you go running. And I can tell the difference in my mood and my life. My girlfriend's even said, you need to start running again, you know, because <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not a joke. I mean, you really get a positive, you get a release and it's better than any high that I've ever had. And I would never have thought growing up, I hated running, <laughs> but now in life, once I got into it in prison and that was what I tapped into, I mean, I, you, you get a high out of running. And, and the thing about running is it feels so good to stop. <laughs> so, I mean, yep. And so I miss that. So today I got that familiar burn, you know, from running. I was running with my girlfriend's daughter, Clara. She's seven. So she was riding the bike. She was like my pace car. And, um, you know, I know tomorrow I'll be a little sore, but it, it starts with a little bit. I just went out and ran for 25 minutes today, you know, a little bit over eight minute mile and not, not, nothing great, but, but we had a good time. And, and so I need to get back into it. And, it, and, and I'm telling you, if the universe wills it, it'll happen. There's a reason why you got in touch with me. And there's a reason why I went out today because it was on my mind when I got up. I'm I was sorry. like, I'm about to do this podcast with these runners. <laughs> I'm going running. Got to remember what this feels like, right? Before you go <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> well, I am glad to hear that. And I absolutely believe the same thing that people are putting our paths uh, for a reason. I've said that on my emails and I know um, people know that I believe that. So thank you for saying that because I totally feel the same way. But um, Damon, you've mentioned your book a few times, The Change Agent. Uh, tell our listeners about where they can find that and where they can follow along with you uh, anywhere else in future. Absolutely. My book is The Change Agent. It just came out and, and it's about my life, um, but it's really way more detailed than what we had in this little, little bit of time we had to share it with each other today. But the book is on amazon.com. It's on Barnes and Nobles. It's, it's all over the country. And there's a lot of people that say it's going to be that they can totally see this being made into a movie. I've had tons of positive reinforcement about it. The book is written all in my own words. I kept waiting for them to tell me somewhere along the way, hey, we need to bring in a ghostwriter or your writing's okay, but it's not great. But mm-hmm. all along the way, my literary agent, my my publicist, everybody, uh, publisher, 
they're all like, Hey man, you've got it. You know, I don't know where you picked it up along the way. And I probably picked up a way to write from, from reading a bunch of books, but no, it's great. The change agent is out. I have another book coming out in May on May 21st. Uh, it's called the coffee meet and I'm doing it with this motivational speaker named John Gordon. Have you ever heard of John Gordon, Tina? Yeah. And that's actually how I found you because, um, I saw you were on the list of, uh, for his summit that's coming up. Right. So yeah. John Gordon gets in touch with me last summer and he gets in touch with me. And I'm like, John Gordon, how do you even know who I am? He's got my cell phone number, right? He wow. said, man, Dabo Sweeney, Sweeney can't quit talking about you, the head coach of Clemson. <laughs> and he said, tell me about this coffee bean story. So when we start talking about it, he said, look, Damon, he said, the next book I write, I want to write it with you. Let's call it the coffee bean. And so just like that, we were in, we were partners together. And John has been an amazing guy. In fact, I mean, you know, if I could suggest one person to follow on social media, it'd be John Gordon. Okay. And he's he's an, uh, an amazing guy. Well, you answered one of my uh, running for all questions. So uh, thank you for that one. That was a bonus one there. <laughs> um, well, Damon, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your story, for just being this, uh, yeah, truly humble and just genuine and just giving person. Thank you for turning, you know, look your life around for inspiring and helping so many. We truly appreciate you sharing with us and look forward to following along with you and your running journey in the future. <laughs> well, Tina, I really appreciate it. You know, and it's like I told that parole officer, all I want to do is be useful and that's how I want to be remembered. And so you gave me an opportunity to be useful today. Well, so thank you. Well, thank you. My friends, if you have a minute and you could leave a review on your favorite podcast player, Apple Podcasts, EA, iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Class, Spotify, or whatever else podcast player you use to listen to this podcast, or if you would subscribe to this podcast, you will help me get out in front of new runners to make our tribe even bigger and even better. It might not seem like you as one person can make a difference, but really it helps a lot. And it shows me you appreciate the hard work I put in for those. Thank you so much. Am I right? What a story that was. I know I didn't say much in that episode, but I wanted to let Damon tell his story as it is just powerful and it goes to show that even though we feel like we're often not in control we are we can control how we react and how our attitude is and I hope Damon inspires you on this Monday you can find links to everything we talked about today in the show notes at tinamuir.com forward slash episode 116 tomorrow I'll be having the first of my psychologists on Josh Lafrak, who is the director of the mental skills program for the Chicago Cubs yes the Cubs are a baseball team I realized that and I Honestly, don't have much interest in baseball myself, but Josh is a passionate runner and he has very applicable advice for us all that he has used with his players, but also he gets running, you know. If you haven't already subscribed, go do that. I have an amazing week of episodes for you here. I promise you, you aren't going to want to miss them. So go subscribe and it will come right to you tomorrow and from then on. Have a great day, my friends. It feels a bit weird saying that, but I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Running For Real podcast. Be sure to check out tinamuir.com for show notes and even more helpful running information. 